I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about the extraordinary China 20th Party Congress, we have with us Dr. Scott Kennedy of CSIS, who is our trustee chair in China Economics and Business. Scott, you just spent over a month in China observing what is going on there and leading up to the 20th Party Congress. This was extraordinary by any measure. Can you tell us a bit about why this was such an earth-shattering moment, both globally and in China? Uh, Well, Andrew, it's really great to have a seat looking at the Party Congress from being inside China. And the fact that no one from think tank land has been in China in almost three years is is really a huge problem in trying to understand what's going on there. And the Party Congress came at the end of my seven weeks. And so I got to hear what people were thinking about in the run-up to the Congress, the guessing about who would get which seat, who would not. And of course, it's the big event in China for five-year period. This one received even more attention than five years ago or 10 years ago when Xi Jinping first got his job, because this essentially is he's getting put in the job for life, right? And this really overturns all the normal rules that we thought had been built into the Chinese system. In the past, if you were a senior leader and you were 68 years of age at the time of the party Congress, you'd retire. And if you were younger, you'd keep on going. The opposite happened in some cases now. Some young folks got no jobs, they retired, and some folks older than 68 kept on going, including Xi Jinping and some of his allies. And we got a leadership which is fully, fully 100% loyal to him, no factional balance whatsoever. He ran the table and he overturned the table. And so we're in a very new era. And in fact, Xi Jinping calls it the new era with a capital T, N, and E that we are in to delineate it from the previous era sort of that was headed by Deng Xiaoping and Mao before. And really, we are in unprecedented areas uh, for China. Obviously, Mao was very powerful, but China is way more powerful than it was when he was leader. And so we've got a country that is really growing still, even though it's facing current economic difficulties. And it has a big agenda. If you read what Xi Jinping said at the 20th Party Congress, They are not just going to be sitting idly by enjoying the fact that they have a lot of power. So this new era, and correct me if I'm wrong, but Xi Jinping truly sees himself as a direct continuum from Mao and Deng Xiaoping. He's the new era. And his new era seems to be oriented towards truly bolstering China's national security and technology. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. You know, Mao's responsibility was to quote unquote, liberate China from imperial forces and create a new country. Deng's responsibility was to make China wealthier. Xi Jinping's job is to make the country stronger and make the party resistant to any type of external and internal challenges. You know, when he was being considered for leader and in his first few years, he recognized that the party was really quite weak. It was corrupt internally. The PLA was corrupt. And instead of taking advice from folks from the West to sort of liberalize and implant rule of law, he went in the Leninist direction. And he has kept going in that direction as fast as he possibly can. In the speech that he gave at the beginning, which I was watching from Shanghai, he used the word struggle and security 
dozens of times. He barely ever mentioned the word reform. He really talked about China as facing this very ominous external environment that it was his job to protect everybody from. And part of that is about China developing its own technologies. They're very concerned that they still depend on the United States and the West for advanced semiconductors, semiconductor equipment, and many other things. And so it's kind of merged the need to protect the party with continuing to grow and face this external environment. Now, one of the things that people should know is China is richer, stronger, safer, healthier than ever before. Yet he describes it like they're under siege. They have this giant chip on their shoulder. And I think that sort of victimization of their status is what people are most worried about, that he might use that victimization complex to crack down at home and to be more aggressive internationally. Now, I would imagine that U.S. senior officials in the Biden administration and in the Congress are a bit concerned here and maybe even a bit more concerned than normal because this posture that she seems to be rolling out here is about, to some extent, maybe to a large extent, saying the United States and its allies, the West, are in the way of China becoming a superpower. We're standing in their way. And this is a struggle for them to overcome our ability to block them. Does Xi Jinping really think that? Or is he using that as a posture to exert more control over his people and to have an excuse to militarize? Andrew, I think actually Xi Jinping really does believe the U.S. and the West have it out for the Communist Party and its hold on power and slowing down what they see as its inevitable rise as a great power and what they call the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, harkening back to periods when they thought China was tops in the world. And, you know, they've got a variety of pieces of evidence that they point to that they say, you know, the U.S. is keeping China down and trying to contain it. And I heard that from officials giving what sounded like official statements, but also from Chinese scholars and other people, it sounded heartfelt. Now, I think part of the reason they think that is the fact that for the last three years, we've had basically zero interaction face to face. So no U.S. officials, no scholars going to China, none of them coming to the United States. And so they've got this echo chamber that is sealed pretty tight where this meme keeps going around and around. And of course, we have an echo chamber, too, because we're not traveling. And so our concern about China's rising power trying to push the U.S. and the West out of the way is also dominating our discourse. And so, you know, one of the things I want to do on this trip and that I hope that others do going forward is actually start communicating to each other and not preparing for only worst case scenarios and trying to see if we can break through some of that very strong stereotypical thinking, which is now dominating how they think about things. And even in Washington, in my last two weeks being back, of course, you hear those things as well. And it's really concerning because we're in this vicious cycle of both sides pushing each other's buttons in a way that looks like it's only going to make things worse. Scott, so if I understand this correctly, China also points to things like the uprising in Hong Kong, and they blame it on us. And she has used rhetoric, much like Putin, that this is, you know, color war stuff that the United States is fomenting. And I think they also maybe, and this is a real question I have for you, Obviously, during the Trump years, there were aggressive trade policies on our part against them. Did they maybe expect that the Biden administration would back off those policies a little bit? And that's not been the case? Sure. Yes, I think you've got that right, that 
when I was meeting with people, their history of U.S.-China relations begins in January of 2017, when Trump took office and then began the trade war, then the penalties on Huawei extended to other companies. And then even though they got a deal in early 2020, the phase one deal, soon after we had the pandemic outbreak and the Trump administration rolled out a whole series of sanctions against China, not looking really to negotiate any of them away. And I think once Trump was defeated, the Chinese thought, well, here comes President Biden back, who's supposed a defender of multilateral order and finding common ground. And he had said that he is going to be an extension of previous presidents prior to Trump, not an extension of Trump. And from their perspective, he looks like Trump, who's just better organized. He's kept in place almost all of the penalties that were imposed by Trump from the tariffs on. And then he's just coordinated better with allies in Europe and Asia to try to multilateralize these things. And then he's rolled out additional restrictions on technology and continued to discuss Taiwan in a way which makes them extremely uncomfortable. And they've not, I guess, from the Chinese perspective, identified what could China do for us to find some common ground where we could peacefully coexist. I think that's really what they are worried about. And I think everybody knows the Biden administration on substance may doing a lot of things right, but their communication strategy, they obviously have not followed the Andrew Schwartz strategy of how you communicate effectively. And so they've got a lot to do. They've certainly highlighted the deterrence and the, the dangers that the Chinese face if they do things wrong. But what could the Chinese do right that would provide some way for us to find common ground that it wasn't just a straight pathway to decoupling and war? I think that's what we need to be able to identify for them. Of course, they're doing lots of things which ought to raise our hackles and concerns. And so we also need to be able to explain to them how we're interpreting things. And that's why the dialogue is as important, not to just find cooperation, but if we're going to compete effectively and deter effectively, they really have to know what we're thinking, why we're worried, why the rest of the world is worried. And you, you don't do that over Zoom. Well, Scott, thank you for saying that. The administration knows where to find me if they need any advice. But I wanted to ask, too, like along the lines of communication, and since you brought up Taiwan, are we sending them confusing messages about what we think about Taiwan? And how did that play out in Xi Jinping's speech to the 20th Party Congress in terms of the new era? This is one place where I come away a little bit less freaked out and worried than most. Certainly, from the conversations I had with folks in China, scholars, government officials, folks in the PLA, business people, they are really worried that the U.S. has essentially abandoned a one-China policy of neutrality and letting the two sides decide the outcome in a peaceful way, deciding with the Taiwanese and basically giving them a blanket military guarantee. I don't think that's exactly the language the Biden administration uses, but it's how it's interpreted by folks in China. I think the Chinese are actually quite reticent about what to do. They've always been worried about their military capabilities, which are essentially untested, even though they built up an immense amount of power, but they haven't gone to war in a long time. So they had some amazing exercises at the beginning of August, but no one was shooting at them. And as Mike Tyson says, you don't know what it's going to be like until someone punches you in the face. So they also have seen what the U.S. has done in Ukraine with the sanctions and the effect that it's had on Russia. And Taiwan's much smaller, but there is a big body of water in between China and Taiwan, and they know that be risking everything on, on this. I sensed a bit of more reticence, which is a good thing, but the long-term arrows still point in the direction of some conflict at some point once the Chinese improve their capabilities and they feel 
like we've lost our resolve. That's the two lines that you don't want to see cross with regard to Taiwan. Scott, China has for decades made a practice that we all know about using cyber to steal intellectual property from the United States companies and indeed from the United States government. We've confronted them on this, and we've also done a lot recently on semiconductors and really instituting our own industrial policy. Does this worry them, and is this part of Xi's equation? Sure. I think for a long time, the Chinese have always been concerned that globalization would not go unfettered for a long time and eventually gradually lose access to advanced technologies, partly because we call them on the cheating, partly because of national security concerns as China got more powerful. On intellectual property rights, businesses that are in China or do business with China report general improvement in IP protection. It ranks much more lower down the list and things that they're hyper-concerned about. But the Chinese are really now focused on obtaining a very narrow set of highly advanced technologies. So even if most folks don't feel that scare anymore, it's still of top concern. And, you know, the U.S. restrictions over the last few years have only gotten tighter. And I know going forward, the U.S. is not done. There's going to be more. There's a really important debate going on in China about how sanction-proof they are and whether the sanctions that are being imposed and the types of restrictions through export controls, investment, will stop them from progressing technologically or spur them to catch up and pass them. So I think it's going to be a mixed record. There are going to be places where they are really stymied. And there's other places where they are going to move ahead because of the restrictions. And so I think we need to be careful about what we're doing because it's not just whether we not we go too far. But we actually might end up in a problem worse than we were simply because it's all deterrence. But they may engage in stealing IP, et cetera. But they got a lot of engineers and scientists who are very, very bright with certainly sufficient incentive. And these things aren't magic. You can figure out how to make some of these things. And so I think we want to figure out not only how to stay ahead in general, but how do we keep the Chinese in ecosystems in which we are ahead of them, but also continue to get a lot of information about the Chinese technologically. If they're totally separate ecosystems, if we totally decouple, that has security downsides as well. So I think it's not a pat solution about restricting. It, it also creates potential costs for us, which I think we all need to talk about, which is you know why CSIS is in business. Scott, also American businesses want to continue to be able to do business in China. And they think that that's healthy, both for the relationship with China and for the United States in particular. Is this going to be harder now for U.S. business to effectively execute in China? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, companies really prefer certainty. They like to know where the lines are drawn, even if they're not drawn where they want them to be. If they're clear enough, they know what they can do and what they can't do. And what's clear right now is that nothing is clear. We're drawing lines with thick magic markers, and so are the Chinese. They don't know precisely what they will do that will generate super pushback from Beijing or what will generate complaints or legal action from Washington. And so I think that uncertainty that I sense from businesses is the biggest challenge they have. And it's the reason that they're not investing more in China. It's why they're looking at Vietnam, India, reshoring back to the United States, 
because they just want to be out of harm's way. And this goes all the way up to C-suites. This isn't just a Washington thing anymore. Companies around the world are trying to figure out what to do. They want to be able to plan, right, for five, 10 years. And with zero COVID, with U.S.-China disputes, with technology restrictions being rolled out and more coming, Taiwan, general supply chain risk, it's uncertainty as far as the eye can see. So a really bad environment for businesses to make long-term bets. And it's why many of the companies that I met were really struggling with deciding what to do. China's a monster market, even if it grows just a little bit, far less than ever before. It's still a giant market. It's half of the global chemical market. It is by far the largest electric vehicle market. But companies are really struggling. Even in non-strategic sectors, people are worried. You know, that's why it's really imperative for the Chinese government to try and figure out ways to reassure folks about the direction it's going in and that Xi Jinping isn't necessarily bad for the world. And the U.S. also has to find a way that we can protect our security as well as our economic foundations and address some of the challenges that we have with the Chinese and globally on climate change, public health, et cetera. So it's a big, big inbox for companies and for governments these days. Going back to the idea of certainty, one of the things that came out of this 20th Party Congress that is certain is that she is firmly in control. And there was some evidence of this, wasn't there, in who he picked to be his top people surrounding him? Sure. One of the things I found in China on this past trip, lots of dinners to talk to folks about gossip and Chinese politics and the leadership. But people's understanding of what's going on inside the leadership is much less than it ever was before. It used to be a pretty leaky system where you could go for a few dinners and meals and get a good sense of what was likely to happen. This time, people admitted that they were telling you what they hoped would happen or what they feared would happen. And so when we got to Sunday, October 16th, with the beginning of the 20th Party Congress, you know, we weren't sure what to expect that she was going to say precisely. And then a week later, when the new leadership walked out, again, it was essentially a surprise. People had thought that maybe Wang Yang, who has credentials as being a relatively reformist person, would get the job as premier, or maybe someone like Hu Chunhua, who's younger, but nevertheless seems capable, or even that Li Keqiang, who's premier, might stay on and run the legislature. And people thought these things maybe because zero COVID hasn't gone well for China. Relationship with the world is really bad. But that's not what happened. Xi Jinping, again, ran the table installed all of his allies on the Politburo Standing Committee, even capped the number of the Politburo as a whole to 24, no women on the Politburo. And at 24, that means he expects there never to be the need for a tiebreaker vote because there's only one vote that matters. And so, Scott, the people he installed around him, you mentioned Wang Yang, who was known as the economic reformer in China. Instead, he installed Li Chong, who's the head of Shanghai and who presided over months of straight lockdowns in Shanghai where zero COVID people couldn't even leave their dwellings for food. And indeed, some people starved to death. Does this really say that she is not picking people who he wants to have policy debates with? He's picking people who will enforce exactly what he says. Is that what we're looking at here? You know, that's what it seems to say, Andrew. And Zero COVID is the dominant policy in China domestically and internationally. China is not going to be able to speed up its economy or address a lot of issues internationally until they get past zero COVID to a post-pandemic era. And 
being in Beijing for several weeks of my trip, people were angry about zero COVID, about all the testing and scanning and the fact that, you know, there's no anonymity whatsoever in China anymore these days. And of course, lots of folks in Beijing and elsewhere have family and friends who live in Shanghai. When I got down to Shanghai, people weren't just angry. They were also depressed. And they're still, to this very day, traumatized by what they've been going through and what they're still going through. There's still lockdowns. People still face, you know, short-term quarantining, et cetera. And not everyone starved, of course, but some people went through really difficult times. And a friend of mine had a colleague who's also a professor. She was in her 80s and she died of starvation. She couldn't figure out how to use her cell phone to get help. These are real stories that aren't made up. And you can't put everything at the feet of Li Qiang, right? Before, he was generally considered a, a pretty good manager. Foreign companies know him pretty well. But, you know, he dropped the ball for sure. And certainly he had to defer to Vice Premier Sun Chunlan, who was sent down by Xi Jinping to Shanghai to push a whole bunch of policies, which ended up really harming people quite badly. And other places have seen Shanghai as a reverse education course of stuff not to do. And Shanghai has adapted as well. But it's really worrying that this is the record that one uh, has just before being appointed to the top job of the government. I think what will happen is we'll have to see what happens in early March at the annual legislative session. Who gets the economics portfolios in different areas for the financial bureaucracy, for economic planning, other jobs? And then we'll know if this is really just full on loyalty test or if the Chinese care at all about managing their economy and society in a way that makes any practical sense. And what does that qualification for loyalty tell us about the U.S.-China relationship? So certainly Xi Jinping has a view of the international system and the United States where he's quite worried about U.S. And he wants to surround himself with people that will be with him through thick and thin no matter what, because he's taking some serious risks challenging the United States in the West, signing up this you know, long-term friendship without end with Russia, essentially siding with them on the war in Ukraine instead of defending the sovereignty of Ukraine. He needs to make sure his ducks are all in a row at home if he's going to continue down this path of struggle with the West instead of finding common ground. I would say one potential upside of this is, you know, 10 years ago when he took power, I think people, including me, overestimated the likelihood of him being a reformer. And of course, he disappointed everybody. He tried a few reforms, then gave up on them because he's a fair weather reformer, and he went all control, right? Now, he does look like he's jerked the steering wheel hard to the left, and he's going to keep going in that direction, and he's got all his loyal colleagues around him. On the other hand, we shouldn't overestimate the direction that he wants to go in. And I don't think he's Kim Jong-un. I don't think that he is willing to keep power absolutely no matter what happens domestically or internationally. At some point, there's going to be economic and international security reality that's going to require him to make some adjustments and hopefully make things for the better. So I think we ought not to overcourse correct on our original assumption about where he was taking things. It ain't going to be pretty. It'll probably be messy. But I don't think we should be totally fatalistic about where it's going and that we don't have any ability to affect the trajectory of China and the relationship. Does the United States government care if they become a superpower? And aren't we just sort of like, it's inevitable, right? Why are they placing such a premium on saying that 
we want to block them from being a superpower. You know, <laughs> if you read the speeches of the Biden administration and talk to people, for the most part, what they're really concerned about is the way China operates domestically and internationally, not just its absolute level of power. So we've always wanted China to adhere more rigorously to its commitments under the WTO, the agreements it signed bilaterally with the U.S. And we want the Chinese to respect international law when it comes to the South China Sea and many other international security issues, as well as with regard to climate, et cetera. So I think there is, within the Biden administration, a general predilection to, to believe that authoritarian countries, particularly China, is less likely to adhere to those commitments and cause great trouble. And they don't know how to effectively influence what's going on inside Chinese politics or its economy. And so that's why they said our goal is to shape the environment around China. Now, they probably are generally right that you can't micromanage the direction of China. But I do think there are ways, subtle ways, if our diplomacy is effective, to broadly try and nudge China in a slightly more positive trajectory than in a negative trajectory. So I think we are in for a period of significant tensions. I'm a little bit worried about the domestic politics, both in China and the United States, making it hard for us to be nimble diplomatically. But we need to have this conversation in the United States. This is not just a one moment issue that at the party Congress, everything is set in stone. We're going to be needing to go back to the drawing board again and again to figure out what to do. And hopefully that means we'll be able to moderate some of the worst trends that we're seeing in China and in the relationship and find some way to pull back from the edge and build some guardrails in the relationship. Scott, finally, I want to ask you about the optics of the 20th Party Congress in and of itself. I mean, it's in a massive hall, soaring ceilings. Everything is very choreographed. The one thing that happened that wasn't choreographed, of course, that everybody's talking about is the removal of former Chinese leader Hu Jintao abruptly and physically. What did that mean? What do you think the intention behind that was? I think there is the reality of that actual situation, and then there's interpretations about its broader significance. And those two things don't necessarily align. It's really unclear precisely what happened. My best guess is that Xi Jinping was not setting up Hu Jintao to embarrass him and purge him and show that he was all in control. I think instead you probably had Hu Jintao, who is aged, elderly, may not be 100% in control of his faculties, a little bit confused by the situation he was in. And folks came over to help him. Li Shu, another official, was right next to him. He was sort of fudging with his papers and not sure. And I, th I think Xi Jinping was like, you know, I think it's probably better if he were to leave the rostrum. And that, of course, didn't look normal at all. And, and Hu Jintao, you know, pushed back on that. And so it was there in front of us to see if it was just that he was confused and then was led away, as one might do with an elderly relative. There's still, though, the perception. And I think the perception uh, is that Xi Jinping is large and in charge and he's brooking no criticism. Uh, and that he can do whatever he wants. And if people see this and they find it uncomfortable, well, tough for us. We just have to live with that discomfort. Um, and I think that's the larger message people are taking away, despite the specifics being somewhat ambiguous. We know that this was Xi Jinping's coronation and everyone else is just at his party.
Scott, fascinating, and I'm sure we'll keep talking about this in the weeks and months to come. Thank you for your really fascinating insights and analysis. Great talking to you, Andrew. Anytime. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 